The ground we stand on accounts for only 30% of the Earth's surface. So what about the rest? Well, that other 70% is our world ocean, which to many of us land dwellers may seem like a foreign concept, an intangible body of water largely separated from our day-to-day -day lives. But in reality, the ocean is the one common link that connects us all. The food we eat, the air we breathe, the storms we ride, and the economies we build are all dependent on our world ocean. On this podcast, we will dive into emerging markets, innovative technology, and conservation efforts to shed light on the ocean, the other 70%, that enables us to have a footprint, a home, and a life on Earth. The other 70% is brought to you by Nortec. As ocean enthusiasts, researchers, and technologists, we are on a mission to make an impact through innovation, exploration, and activism above and below the surface. Help keep us exploring by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. Hey there, everyone. This is your host, Nevin DiParlo, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Other 70%. In recent days, the world of fisheries and aquaculture has had quite the buzz surrounding it. So we decided to sit down with David Kelly, CEO of Innovacy, a company that designs technology to enable fish farms to make data-driven decisions. We wanted to get an inside perspective on aquaculture and hear more about the science behind some of the typical concerns raised around the industry. For example, what makes for a sustainable fish farm? Are fish farms better or worse for the environment than open ocean fishing? And what about antibiotics and feed? We believe that informed decisions are the best kind, and we hope that this episode can give you some insight into the world of aquaculture and how it will play a role in our future on our planet. Without further ado, let's dive into today's show. Dave, welcome to, this is going to be probably episode three, I think, of The Other 70%, so we're really happy to have you here. Uh, glad to be here, Nevin. It's a, it's a good time to talk. So. Great. Yeah, I do. I think it's a great time to talk. Um, so I think to kick things off, what would be best to just frame this for the listeners is to hear from you uh, sort of your definition of, of aquaculture. And then also maybe if you could speak uh, for a moment about what Innovacy actually does within the aquaculture industry, that would be great. Sure. Sure. So I think the, the definition of aquaculture is to raise uh, species, be it fin fish, shellfish, or even uh, macroalgaes um, in the environment for uses. Uh, so as opposed to naturally occurring or naturally growing. In Innovacy, we focus on the technology to support aquaculture, uh, in particular fin fish aquaculture, but some of our businesses do support uh, shellfish and macroalgaes and others. When Innovacy was founded, the core focus was on open ocean aquaculture. Uh, and uh, the investor behind the founding had a vision that if you could open up uh, the portions of the oceans uh, that can be used for aquaculture, you could potentially have a scalable solution that would meet the needs of a growing planet for protein. And that's driven both by population growth going from seven to nine billion people, as well as economic growth. As, there, as people uh, move up the economic chain and move into the middle class, the amount of protein they consume in their diets tends to go up. 
and as as uh, nations and people become wealthier, there's more protein consumption in their diets, and uh, fish and shellfish are one of the more uh, sustainable low impact protein sources from a water use carbon footprint feed conversion ratio perspective land use perspective they're more efficient than the other major terrestrial protein sources of cows uh, pigs and chickens so and anova seed today uh, supports the whole egg to harvest chain so we have uh, land-based technology recirculating aquaculture systems that support hatcheries and nurseries, as well as grow out. Uh, and that's both for uh, hatcheries and nurseries for shellfish, as well as finfish and grow out for finfish, both uh, freshwater and saltwater, warm water and cold water species. We have uh, open ocean farm systems that are submersible pens work designed to work in a more energetic environment a little further from the shore where there's a better ability of the environment to absorb uh, the effluents from the facility. The water is uh, exchanged at a higher rate than uh, near shore farms and the fish are, are raised in a, a healthier environment in general. Mm-hmm. And then we have a aquaculture intelligence group which works on instrumentation and sensing systems to provide operational data back to the farmers as they're growing the fish, both environmental conditions, uh, conditions of the equipment being used to raise the fish, as well as biological condition of the fish themselves. And that, uh, that business spans a, a wide variety of nearshore, offshore, and even uh, land-based uh, clients. Great. No, that's, that's, I think, a really great overview. And before we dive into some of those details, because I think there's a, there's a lot built in there, um, what, what did your background look like and how did you ultimately find your way into the aquaculture and sort of the, the ocean tech space? Yeah, so a little bit unusual, uh, considering the backgrounds of most folks in aquaculture tend to come out of the the biology of the marine science side of the house. I was a, a classically trained engineer and then uh, moved into software uh, and really uh, was in the defense electronics industry for a while. And then the um, internet IT space and then immediately preceding an oversee, I was working in autonomous underwater vehicles at Bluefin Robotics. Exposed me to the marine space and the application of technology uh, in the ocean space. Um, and so then came into Anovacy mostly uh, for the ability to apply the technology uh, to the industry. Uh, I thought the application was useful too, as far as growing sustainable protein for a growing planet, helping feed a growing planet a better diet, um, and then to, uh, to learn the industry. Right. No, that's great. And I think that it's, it's always interesting to hear what some of the backgrounds are in this industry in particular. I mean, not just aquaculture, but in ocean tech, like everyone sort of follows different paths, but uh, a, a lot of them end up colliding back at, you know, the, the origin of subsea robotics. So it's pretty interesting. Um, and in terms of the market, right, that, that you guys are operating in for aquaculture, I think that globally, the seafood market as a whole is somewhere north of $100 billion, right? I mean, we feed, I think roughly 3 billion people rely on seafood as a protein source. I don't know if that stat is about 30. 
About 30%. Yeah. Um, how much of that market, the global seafood market is actually, is aquaculture accounting for um, in, in the grand scheme of things? But so in the human consumption of marine protein, aquaculture provides over 50%, a little over 50%. The crossover point was within the last decade. Um, and basically, if you, uh, the Food and uh, Agricultural Organization, the UNFAO, is sort of the go-to point for all the data on this uh, globally. And if you look at their charts, wild capture fisheries have plateaued in production, give or take, since about the 80s mm -hmm. to the 90s. And the entire growth in the production of seafood for human consumption since that time, that growth has been provided by aquaculture. Right. And so I think at a, at a macro level, at a planet level, uh, increased production of marine protein is going to be driven by aquaculture. Yes, there can be some growth of wild capture fisheries. There's great increases in the sustainability of the of the those fisheries. There's more and more being sustainably managed. There's many that still need to get to that stage. But um, the, even if those are at max production, they're just not going to be able to provide what's needed. So really, the growth has got to come from aquaculture. Yeah, and so moving forward, as the population continues to grow, it's absolutely critical then that aquaculture scales with that population growth in order to meet the demand because we simply if the fisheries are to remain sustainable without over exploiting the resources in terms of the wild catch um we 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 can't take more from them than we already are right now is what it sort of it sounds like is that right in terms of what you're saying that we have we have to grow aquaculture in order to to feed the planet because the fisheries aren't going to be able to support the wild catch. I think there's two drivers on increased protein use or demand. One is the increase in the population, but the other is the increase in the economic status of that population. So the larger the middle class, and there's been tremendous gains in growing the middle class, people moving out of low income and poverty states into the middle class. And as they move up, that socioeconomic ladder, the amount of protein in their diet increases. And mm -hmm. so even if you had the same population level with the economic growth of the planet, there would still be increased protein demand due to the increasing numbers of people in the middle class. So there's two factors. And <clears throat> you, you've got to look at the production of that protein sustainably um, and impacts on water and land use and greenhouse gases. And uh, our position is that aquaculture and, and fish are one of the more uh, sustainable and economic and productive of those approaches. Right. And so in terms of sustainability, and this is one of my questions that I was going to ask you for how we scale aquaculture, how do you define a sustainable aquaculture operation? Or how, how is that defined globally or is it different for different people you might ask? Well, I, I think our definition would be is that you have minimal long-term or permanent environmental impact. Like any activity is going to have some level of environmental impact. If we okay. look at the, the open ocean farms we've been working with, 
you know, the farm in Panama and uh, the Atlantic coast there has been operating for 10 years. We've done sediment sampling, water sampling, et cetera, across that time. We have 10 years of data. We have similar time series of data in uh, Mexico and Hawaii as well. And what that shows is a properly sited farm with the proper carrying capacity for the amount of protein produced has a, a negligible or a, a minimally measurable impact. Um, and that permanently the environment can, uh, can recover from it. And, right. and what we've seen is outside of the farm area, it's for the <clears throat> regulatory requirements, the measurements either at or below the limits, in some case not, some cases not measurable. Uh, and on nearshore farms, I think uh, in a properly managed farm sited, et cetera, you can have minimal uh, long-term impact. You may have some localized impact in the farm when it's operating, uh, but the environment can recover after you follow that for a period of time. So that's, that's really a look. There's going to be on any of these farms, you know, if you're using boats, then there's greenhouse gas emitted from the engines, et cetera. I mean, there's going to be an impact. You don't get nothing comes for free, but it, it can be done in a way that is scalable and doesn't permanently have a, a long-term impact. Yeah. So feed, this is something that is really interesting to me as well, is that one of the things that in, in doing some research I read into is that feed can oftentimes be the source of, of a lot of like environmentalist concerns with impact on the surrounding ecosystem of the wild fisheries or like a, a, a coral habitat. Um, so when you're growing fish, obviously the, the feed that you're providing in those aquaculture farms is sometimes has like antibiotics in it. Right. And then when the, when the fish actually, um, you know, go to the bathroom, they might leak those antibiotics back out, or there might be traceability of those antibiotics in the, in, in their, uh, in their poop. And then other fish that are outside of the farm might, consume that and be uh, negatively affected. Um, what is the reality of that? Is it a real, is that a major concern? And are there a lot of innovative developments going on in the feed space to make that more sustainable? Yeah. So let's split that into two pieces. One, let's talk about anti antibiotics and then two, let's talk about feed. Yep. So in antibiotics, let's be clear. In fish, giving a fish antibiotics has no impact on its growth rate. That's not true of terrestrial protein. So there was a time when terrestrial protein animals were fed antibiotics to increase their growth rate with the negative consequences of the bugs evolving based on that. So that whole application of antibiotics to fish is irrelevant because it doesn't work. Okay. So there, that, there's that aspect. If fish get sick or get a disease, your choice is, is either to treat them or to let them suffer the ravages of the disease. In most of the area, the vast majority of areas that I'm aware of that do aquaculture, to administer antibiotics to the fish requires a veterinary's order, a veterinarian's order. So the farmer just doesn't randomly do this. They need to have the veterinarian's order to do it. Most of the time in 
it requires coordination with the, with the regulatory bodies. And they don't do it willy-nilly because it costs money. So they're mm-hmm. only doing it if they need to do it. So I think the, there's, there's several aspects to the antibiotic discussion, one of which it doesn't help them feed, grow. So there's not any use to accelerate growth, which was the case for terrestrial protein a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Two, it costs money to do, and it's regulated, and it requires the doctor's order. And three, for the most part, the antibiotics used on fish are not used in humans. The list of, of human-used antibiotics is known, and the antibiotics approved for fish is typically not the antibiotics used by humans. So that's the antibiotics. On the feed side, you know, there's a great concern of, hey, there's wild fish and fish meal and fish oil and feed. And if we go aquaculture, we'll run out of fish meal and fish oil and we'll there'll be no bait fish left in the ocean. Um, you know, the, the feed producers by and large are multi-billion dollar companies and the level of sophistication in science is extreme. I, I made the mistake of sitting in on a feed panel at an aquaculture conference a number of years ago. And by the end of the hour, my head hurt. It was just PhD after PhD discussing digestibility and nutrition and the science in feed is staggering. And the science in looking at what are the optimal fish meal, fish oil ratios for a given species at a given point in the life stage of the animal is staggering. And if you look at the content of fish meal, fish oil and salmon feed, it has plunged over the last 20 years. There's also always the question of, well, what about alternate sources, fish meal, fish oil from algae? And, and there's a lot of work and a lot of money going into that. These are multi-billion dollar companies that are very sophisticated, look many years in the future. So I think in the feed realm, there's a tremendous amount of work and research and technology being applied. And I think they will stay well ahead of the curve of the industry and being able to provide feed to grow the fish. I, it's, they, they field armies of PhDs working these issues. I mean, it sounds like that should alleviate a lot of concerns then in the future for like potential environmental impact of people being concerned about how the fish feed is maybe affecting the envi- the surrounding environment. If you know, there's so much technology and development going into producing a sustain a more sustainable feed or more sustainable feed. And and even now it seems like the impact is really quite minimal. So I guess to to sort of transition here a little bit in terms of I guess from sustainability of the of the actual aquaculture farms to maybe broader ocean sustainability. Um what do you see as the main benefits to using aquaculture as a, a reliable source for protein moving forward and growing the aquaculture industry um, versus, you know, the traditional commercial fishing space? I mean, we, we already hit on the fact that commercial fishing is sort of tapped out on um, their production volume of, of catch in the wild fisheries and we need to rely on aquaculture but is there actually a world where like we can rely less and less and less on on commercial fishing and more on aquaculture while still being sustainable and actually letting those wild fisheries prosper beyond their their current status 
Well, so I, I live in a coastal community with an active commercial fishing presence and we yeah, need yeah. commercial fishermen. Sure, <laughs> we sure. need that. I mean, again, although aquaculture produces more than 50% of human consumed marine protein, the wild capture is still a very significant percentage. And I, they need, there's need for both. There's certain species that aren't economical to grow in aquaculture. Uh, that the only way you're going to get them is wild catch. There's a several billion people that rely on wild catch marine protein. And there's an economic, there's coastal communities whose economic livelihood is driven by wild capture fisheries. So, you know, I believe this is a case where a rising tide raises all boats. A sustainable wild capture fishery is very, is good. It helps the economy. It provides protein and a growing aquaculture business provides the protein. So I don't, I'm not going to sit here and uh, forecast or advocate for the end of wild fishery, commercial fishing. Yeah. Uh, and, and no, absolutely not. It's unrealistic at, uh, in any event. So, yeah. And I think that, that that's very important to hear from someone like you who has uh, a lot of credibility in the aquaculture space is that, you know, it's not, it's not a replacement of existing commercial fishing operations. And it's important that both commercial fisheries and aquaculture farms are held to sustainable standards. And, you know, we can all elevate the you know, business and livelihood of, of, I guess, all of those industries in, in supplying proteins to the growing population. So um, well, I mean, you can see that in your local fish counter. If you go down the, the road, you'll see farm raised salmon, wild caught salmon, you'll see premium prices for wild caught coho. And, um, you know, that again, there's a place for the wild capture. And then in some cases it actually raises the value of their product. If there's a baseline demand driven by, by aquaculture product. Yeah. So I guess to segue a bit, you know, not to put too much emphasis on this whole documentary on Netflix, that's causing a lot of buzz lately. Um, but I think we've talked a lot about some of the important true facts that are associated with aquaculture and, you know, what some of the potential negative impacts are, but how those are being mitigated and why it's so important to, you know, sustaining the future of our protein supply from, from your opinion. And did you watch the Spiracy? Uh, no, I have not watched it yet. Okay. Well, so based on what you've probably heard then, um, what are what what's your reaction to that and i guess not to get too bogged down in the details but like if someone came to you and said hey you know dave i'm i'm really not sure if i want to eat fish anymore after watching seaspiracy how would you respond to that and what would your advice be well i guess my first question would be is you know what have you seen or heard that led you to that conclusion uh, a sidebar anecdotal story I had a, um, I was flying to Baltimore a couple of years ago and I sat down Southwest flight. So, you know, everybody's all together, full plane stacked in. Yeah. And, uh, there's a, a woman sitting next to me, a, a grandmother. And so we were chatting and she said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I support aquaculture. We build the equipment, et cetera. And she said, well, you know, I, I don't know if I like aquaculture. <laughs> so, all right, well, that's fair. You know, what, what are your concerns? What have you heard? And so she went through, you know, sort of the standard uh, statements you hear, oh, you know, fish meal, fish oil, and it's wasteful and all. And so we stepped through the conversation over the course of the 40 odd minute flight to Baltimore. 
And when we landed, she said, well, you know, I, I thank you very much for this conversation. I, you, you've changed my attitude on it. And I, I think I'll go look at it. So I, <clears throat> that would be my general view. Um, you know, there in a broader context, there has been multiple documentaries that Netflix has put into their documentary series that have run into a, a real criticism for not for being a propaganda advocacy piece by a true documentary. And I think Seaspiracy falls into that. I think a lot of it is around wild capture fisheries, um, some of which is dated, some of which is, as everybody has said, is overly dra dramatized. And, and having worked with some people that have been filming it at some of the farms and sites and looking at creating content for television or series or streaming, you know, there's always this effort to have some sort of story and action to engage the audience. So I just, I think we need a much more rationed, serious conversation based on state of the art, what the industry is today, not 20 years ago, and not highly um, coming into a situation highly prejudiced with a with a, a advocacy that you want to make. So, yeah, I, I think I think that's a really good point, and I think you frame that well because, in my opinion, you know, just from talking to you today i mean i personally am someone who eats fish i eat quite a lot of fish actually and um i eat both wild caught fish and uh farmed fish and i i personally think that you have really shed some light on a lot of the the truth behind the technology and the innovation that's going on in the aquaculture space and how that is supporting sustainable practices moving forward so i think for other people listening, it's it's really critical to understand that, you know, this is technology. It's not just, you know, someone out there winging it and out to, you know, just make a profit and destroy the, the ocean environment. It's, it is a, a way of life that one, we need to support the growing population and, and two, um, is very heavily monitored with advanced technology that is ensuring that we're limiting environmental impact. Um, and one of the other things that, that I'm curious about is I feel like one of the big concerns beyond the environmental impact is, you know, the potential for some of the farmed fish or aquaculture fin fish to, um, to, to potentially have like diseases, right? I mean, that's one of the things we really briefly hit on earlier. And that's one of the things that I think was shown and highlighted in the documentary. Um, what would you what would your response be to concerns with regard to disease and then ultimately consuming a fish that might have had a disease in an aquaculture farm so um let's deal with the latter first right so just as there's regulation on the growing of fish there is extreme regulation on the processing and distribution of fish so the chances of a diseased fish getting out and into the food distribution network is exceptionally low, especially in the U.S. and more modernized countries that have sophisticated food safety regimes and inspection. Um, you know the amount of the amount of traceability and testing and oversight on on the processing is more than most people would imagine. Um, and it's a, there's a traceability from point of harvest to point of distribution, along with a cold chain. So knowing what temperature that fish is at at the entire time so that bacterial growth can occur. Um, 
and fish are, you know, disease fish are cold, et cetera. So I think there's a, a very sophisticated and rigorous process to avoid putting bad food into the food distribution system. Yeah. I feel like one of the biggest disconnects here is that maybe because the ocean is like sort of this misunderstood place. And in many cases, it's out of sight, out of mind for, for a lot of people on land. Um, but I feel like there's a disconnect between what people think of when they're going to buy their like hamburger patties at the grocery store versus their salmon fillets. I mean, it, the regulation is just as stringent for seafood as it is for um, terrestrial protein sources, I, I would assume. And um, it, I feel like maybe people forget that you also could risk getting sick from eating, you know, uh, red meat or chicken that is, uh, you know, was diseased when it was, um, when it was processed and then ultimately put on the shelves and the risk of that is very low. And I would assume, you know, similar to the risk of getting sick from eating farmed fish. Yeah. The food safety regime in the United States was put into place at the turn of the 1900s, you know, the 18th to the 19th to 20th century. It's been in existence for well over a hundred years and the states have followed. It's, you know, it's one of the safest food distribution systems in the world. doesn't mean there aren't mistakes that occur. Mm -hmm. They're very isolated and they're typically stamped out pretty quickly. So I think the I wouldn't be I wouldn't be worried about the safe on the broader issue of disease. Look, it's a living animal and there's a population and there isn't a disease out there that aquaculture caused to happen. They were naturally occurring diseases. Um, sea lice on salmon is a is a is an issue and it's gets a lot of attention in the environmentalists. There's sea lice on wild salmon before there was salmon farming in Norway. If you talk to the people catching salmon in the wild catch salmon in Norway in the early 1900s, there were multiple sea lice on the salmon they caught. So these, this is a naturally occurring organism. It's how do you keep it from running rampant through the, the population you have? And there is concern on aquaculture operations and the disease in that population transferring to the wild mm -hmm. fish population. And that's, you know, and then you get into sighting and you get into minimizing escapes um, and keeping the, the farm fish separate and segregated from the wild fish. Yeah. And so I think that that's an interesting, um, that's another interesting point in terms of the sighting process. And one of the things that I actually read that, that you had said in the past, or maybe it was in a, in a video, um, one of the things that you had said, and I think one of the things that Anovacy really is, is enabling is that collecting data and making data-driven decisions um, and, and, you know, following optimal feeding procedures can go a really long way in ultimately creating a successful, sustainable aquaculture operation where, you know, you minimize environmental impact and you've done your due diligence leading up to the installation of a fish farm to make sure that they're, you know, those practices are sustainable and you have the data to support that. Um, so it seems like a lot of that work in making sure that, that, you know, you're following sustainable procedures really comes in the, the pre-construction phase of the farm and, and making sure that you have the insight required to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the regulatory process in the US, which is yet to successfully license a <clears throat> aquaculture farm in federal waters, I mean, maybe there's one. You, when you go to do that, the Environmental Protection Agency is involved, the Army Corps of Engineers is involved, 
NOAA is involved. Uh, when you go and try to grow fish, you've got the FDA involved, you've got the USDA involved. Uh, the siting tools, if you um, look at NOAA's siting tools, there's like 35 different layers of data that come into place. <clears throat> and, and if you want to watch vast swaths of the ocean disappear from site, just start working through the layers that go in to when you're looking at where to site. You know, NOAA's looking at some aquaculture opportunity areas. And what comes rolling in when you try to identify where to put those is existing boat traffic, restricted areas, endangered species, endangered habitat, monuments, where's the current fishing work, oil and gas, um, on and on and on. And 27, 30, 35 layers of data later, what, you know, was this giant piece of ocean is now as this little postage stamp, realizing <laughs> that the scales you're dealing with postage stamp is still fairly big. But I mean, vast swaths of the USEEZ disappear on those different data layers for different reasons and restrictions. Right. And, and one of those restrictions I would guess is to make sure that the, there, there's still, you know, economic support and viability for the commercial fishing industry, too, just the environmental impact, which I think is another thing people is, is a common misconception is that, you know, we are looking out for the commercial fishing industry and um, you know, they're not trying to, blow it out of the water with sustainable aquaculture practices. No, and the, and the regional fishery management councils are involved, and that's the organization that the government, the federal government has set up with the local communities and the states to, to protect the wild capture fishery uh, heritage and their operating areas. Yeah, and I, it, it's, it, I, I think that that's, that's a great that's a great point to make in the broader ocean tech space, because a lot of the conversations that I've had, you know, in talking on maybe more like the robotics or technology side, which you're obviously really familiar with as well, is that, you know, this isn't a solution or this isn't a problem that we're going to be able to solve, you know, with, with just one company. I mean, it's going to fall down or fall on collaborative opportunities, collaborative research and different industries being able to work together if we're going to save the ocean and make sure that we can continue to exploit the resources that we need from it, whether that be protein or energy, um, you know, in the decades to come. So knowing that aquaculture is working hand in hand with, you know, commercial fishing, um, I see as being really important and uh, and also supportive of the fact that, you know, it's a problem that can be solved and will be solved. Yes, and, I, and we agree. And I think if, especially if you're looking at ocean-based aquaculture, a lot of what those fishermen need, uh, the aquaculture organizations need as well. Working waterfronts, the, the boat, the processing plants, the supporting infrastructure and the supporting services are very common. Um, and so, you know, if you want working waterfronts and, and good middle-class jobs for folks on the water, it's, it's a hand in a hand in hand situation, not a us against them. Yeah. And I know we're approaching the, uh, the top of the hour here. And I think, you know, one really good takeaway to, to sum things up and, and wrap everything full circle would be to understand what your view is on the future of aquaculture. I mean, envision that we have 9 billion people on the planet and, you know, the next few decades, um, where do you see aquaculture fitting in and what does the future aquaculture farm and operation look like globally? 
But I think the future is bright, and I, I think it's a it's a combination of efforts and approaches. I don't I think you know the land based RAS will have its place. <clears throat> near shore net pen uh, systems will have their place open ocean will have their place wild captured fisheries will have their place be it algae shellfish or fin fish uh, all of that's going to be needed to provide a the volume and b the variety uh, to support the population and i think it can be done sustainably the the amount of research and the amount of thinking and sophistication that's going into this is is pretty impressive. And you know, nobody wants to go in and trash an area, and nobody wants to cause wreak environmental havoc. Everybody wants to do things sustainably and in a cost efficient manner. Um, and part of it's evolving the industry. In any industry, you can all, there's a distribution of capabilities. You can always find one that should be doing it better and is working to improve their game. But I think it's the question of what is the state of the possible and, and being successful with that. You know, I'm, the glass is half full and uh, the future is bright. It's not a Malthusian world. Well, I definitely will be continuing to eat fish. Uh, I certainly do care about the ocean a lot. And I would encourage anyone who is... Um, is skeptical of, of aquaculture to listen to this, do some research on what Innovacy is doing and understand that this is real science. And it, there's a lot of, of innovation going into this industry to make sure that um, the food that we are putting on, on people's plates is sustainable and will be for the long term. So David, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation and I hope to have you on again down the line. Sure, my pleasure, Evan. Glad to be here and have a good day. Thanks again to David for joining me on the show today. It was really fun digging into all the complex topics that are floating around the aquaculture industry today. And if you're interested in learning more about the work Innovacy does, we would suggest checking out their website at innovacy.com, linked in the description for this podcast. We also encourage you to do your own research on aquaculture and fisheries so that you can make informed decisions when it comes to the seafood you eat. A good place to start would be to check out resources from NOAA, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, research organizations such as the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and other reputable sources. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Other 70% with Nortec. As always, we are looking for new ways to bring together those with an interest in our blue planet. Tune in again later this month to hear more from inspiring entrepreneurs, technologists, and activists who are building the blue vision for the future.